Well, I think it's the big story of our times. And I feel incredibly lucky to have been in the front row to watch all this stuff happen, to, to watch our world change. From Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. I'm Danielle Kahn, head of Lift Labs, and today we're sitting down with Stephen Levy, who was named as America's premier technology journalist by The Washington Post. Stephen is the editor at large at Wired Magazine and has written multiple books about technology, cryptography, internet, cybersecurity, and privacy. His latest book, Facebook, The Inside Story, digs deep into the story of the once-in-a-generation unicorn company that has changed the way we communicate. Stephen had years of unprecedented access to Facebook's executives, employees, and operations in order to tell his unbiased opinion about the rocky rise of Facebook. In this episode, Stephen chats with our producer, Kevin Schmidlin, about what he learned while following the multi-billion dollar company for the past five years. He'll talk about Facebook's motto of, quote, move fast and break things, and how founders can learn to move fast without breaking as many things. And he'll share what founders can do to make sure their business is using the latest tools and technologies to elevate their idea beyond the competition. We join Stephen and Kevin now at Lift Labs. Stephen, thank you so much for being on Ideas Elevated today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Happy to be here, Kevin. Great. So you were called by the Washington Post as America's premier uh, technology journalist, right? And you've made a career of, of writing about technology, correct? That's true. Why? What do you love about technology? I used to write about just about anything. You know, uh, I was a rock critic. I wrote about sports. I wrote some stuff about crime, other things. And relatively early in my career, someone suggested I write about computer hackers. And this was in the early 1980s, 1981, actually. And I never touched the computer and was introduced to this world. And the people I met were fascinating. And I felt they had their finger on something that was really going to be important. And I wanted to learn more about that world. And I wanted to write about that world more, and that became my subject matter. But it kept your your, your attention and your focus. Well, I think it's the big story of our times. Yeah. And I feel uh, incredibly lucky to have been in the front row to watch all this stuff happen, to, to watch our world change. You know, it, there's been such dramatic changes, the way we live, uh, the way we do everything from technology, the way the, the whole world operates. And I have been lucky enough to be able to talk to the people who made it happen, uh, to look into all these changes, and to uh, be sort of an ambassador um, to my world of, of journalism um, to be able to tell these stories. Right. So the most recent book is Facebook, The Inside Story. Why did you want to write this book? In late August 2015, Mark Zuckerberg posted to his Facebook feed that a billion people had been on Facebook the day before. And I, that had never happened before. A billion people on one interactive network, in one group, in one room, right? right? You know, virtually, that they were. And I realized, you know, I've been thinking about uh, doing another book. This is my topic. I've got to write about this. I knew about Facebook. I've been covering them for uh, years beforehand. And now I realized I had to write a book about them to tell this story, you know, who these people were, how they did this, what their plans were, and just everything about it to describe 
how the world had changed and how they were planning to change the world more. Right. So tell me about the access that you had to Facebook and, and what it does on the inside during this time. So I wanted to be able to spend a lot of time with these people and to really get that story uh, from them. And I, of course, I would implement it with other people, you know, and yeah. former employees and people who work with them, people who worked against them. But it was important to hear from primarily Mark, Mark Zuckerberg right. and Sheryl Sandberg, the COO, and other key people, what they were doing and just the people who were building the products to really understand the way they worked. And I had to convince them to cooperate. Fortunately, they knew my work. Their top guy in policy and communications used to work at Google. And he had been in a similar position when I asked Google the same question for my previous book. And that worked out. So even so, the first answer was no. And it took a while for them to come around right. and realize it might be of some value to them to have an outside independent person looking at them. And I have to emphasize there was no strings attached. I could write whatever I wanted and they wouldn't even see it till it was totally done. Wow. Wow. Not even a preview until it was released. No, I gave them the finished book uh, just you know, maybe two weeks ago, right before it came out. Wow. So... You get permission to have this access. What was the access itself like? Were you attended meetings? Were you just one-on-ones with Mark Zuckerberg? How did that look? I attended a few meetings, not as many as I, I wanted, actually. Yeah. I, I wanted to go to the weekly Q&A that Mark did. They never let me do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a few at Google, you know, the, the equivalent. So it was mostly interviews and things at conferences. You know, like I would observe their events. Um, I did travel with Mark Zuckerberg at one point. We went to Nigeria. Uh, I I tagged along for that trip. I met him at one of the stops when he was doing this tour of the United States when things were falling apart at Facebook. He decided to, you know, visit all the states and do things like ride around the track in a NASCAR car and, (laughs) you know, get coffee with Pete Bourgeois and, you know, strange things. (laughs) But it was mainly talking. So let's let's talk about the things that, that that entrepreneurs can learn and take away, like companies can learn and take away from your study of this company that has in so many ways changed the world. So when we talk about the things that make Facebook exceptional, what's the first thing that comes to mind to you? I think the first thing is that it it, it serves, you know, especially originally, it really served a, a, a need and, and something that users wanted to do and something Mark wanted to do. It was an interest of his. In his sophomore year at Harvard, Mark worked in a number of different projects. He called them projects, and he didn't go to class much. But the the thread of all these products was something that he wanted himself to improve his life at Harvard, and he thought that his classmates would like the same thing. For instance, the first thing he did that semester was create a, a product where everyone could see what classes that their friends were enrolling in. So uh, if you were thinking of enrolling in a class and you saw, oh, these people I know are in it, I'll have a good experience. Or maybe if I cut class, they could give me their notes. And he did this and it was super popular. And then he came, uh, did, did other products and each one had some sort of social component and they're all things that he was interested in. So Facebook was really the culmination of about the maybe a half dozen of these little projects he worked on. And again, something that he thought he'd like for himself. So I think the lesson is 
don't write or create a product for uh, some distant audience where you think, oh, those people would like this. It's build something that you right, want to right. use. Build, build the product with yourself almost as the user in mind. Yeah, I was lucky enough to visit the Macintosh development team before the Macintosh came out. Uh, and uh, they were, were loving the process because they were building a computer that they really wanted to use, yeah. that people would love as much as their stereo systems, they right. say. And at the time, people didn't think of computers that way. Right, right. So another common theme with Facebook is that they were able to move fast and break things. Right. Can you talk about that a little bit? Now looking back, you know, really almost 20 years on, on the life and times of Facebook, you know, how much of their success has relied on that? And, and on the same token, like how much has that been a cautionary tale for how to go about doing things? So move fast and break things was originally a term used for how you would code and build the products. Facebook came at a time when web development was turning. There were brand new tools to create a website. This is before mobile. And it enabled you to very quickly put something up and very quickly update it. Yeah. And move fast and break things means push something out. If it crashes the system, don't worry because we're going to have a new version up right away. So you could iterate so much more quickly. And this was a big mind change from the previous paradigm where you would create a version of software and then if something went wrong, you'd have to rush out V1.1. Right. And but Test it generally for six the months. big versions, <laughs> the big versions came months later, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's something like a, a Microsoft operating system years later. Right. You know, they were talking about updating several times a day. And it became a point of honor among Facebook engineers that you really didn't make your bones until you crashed the system. <laughs> right. So that's that's where that came from. But it became used, as I think as you indicated, uh, to describe the way the company acted in general in terms of the way it designed and released products and made its policy views. And that did wind up biting them because they would move fast and if they broke things, the things they broke became increasingly more valuable. So it's one thing to, you know, uh, break something that crashes your program. Yeah. It's another thing to break something that like ruins your evening right. uh, if you're planning an event. And it's quite something else to like ruin your life if some content that isn't policed spurs a riot and right. someone dies in the riot. Right. And that literally happened in Myanmar. My goodness. So it sounds like, you know, on a, on a smaller scale, yes, move fast and break things. But maybe maybe as the thing that you break gets so, so, so much bigger that it, it's... <laughs> so at a certain point, Mark changed the motto. He said, we're no longer going to move fast and break things. But our new motto is move fast with stable infrastructure. <laughs> that doesn't have as much of a ring. <laughs> That's exactly what I said to him in those words when he told me that. I think he felt it was prudent at that yeah, point. It was probably time, right? <laughs> That's great. Let's talk a little bit more about the founder, right? So so in the event that we just had here at Lyft Labs, you talked about how in your experience studying technology and, and covering this world for a few decades, the founder of these companies that change the world tend to be the it factor, right? Is that basically how you feel about a, a strong founder of a company? Pretty much. Uh, and I've been schooled on this by not only following uh, the big companies and, and talking to the founders like Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs and Larry Page 
and Mark, uh, but also spending a lot of time at uh, Y Combinator, which is a, sure. a very prolific incubator, accelerator, right. I don't know what you want to call it. Yeah. And Paul Graham, who is the founder, of that, co-founder of that operation, talks a lot about founders and uh, maybe reveres them even too much, but uh, it talks about how it isn't the idea, it's the founder. You're looking for someone who is going to have the courage and relentlessness to come up with an idea and drive it through. Right. So if somebody listening, I mean, those folks that you mentioned, Jeff Bezos, Mike Zuckerberg, like, they're idolized in this world, right? So Maybe too much. Right, right. Maybe too too much. But for somebody who might be listening who has an idea for a product or has already started it, what advice do you have for them in trying to be the best founder that they can be? I think one good idea is to use the best, newest tools that take advantage of the biggest advances that happened very, very recently, because these always go so fast. Right. Identify the things that you could do now that you couldn't do before. And with tools that are so new that the big powers in the field haven't understood them or used them yet. Right. And then you can go farther than anyone else. And think of the most ambitious thing you could do with those tools. And then don't be afraid or shy away when people tell you that's impossible or that's a dumb thing to do. Because all those people were told that. Right. And they had the courage to say, you're wrong. I know we can do this. If anything, when you hear that, it could mean that you're actually onto something groundbreaking. Yeah. Right? <laughs> or you could be crazy too. But, <laughs> yeah, but right. That's the chance that you take as but, a founder. <laughs> but you're in the game. Yeah, that's right. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the lessons that Facebook has learned. So lessons that founders and entrepreneurs and folks who are running companies can learn from what Facebook has done. What's one thing that you think either Facebook or even Mark Zuckerberg could or should do differently if they had to do it again? I think one thing they might want to consider doing differently is take a different course when the company opened up the news feed to be more Twitter-like. This was a competitive situation. I think at a certain point, Mark became obsessed with Twitter. Mm. And he tried to buy Twitter. Uh, they would sell it to him. And he, he said, okay, well, I'm going to put Twitter-like aspects into the newsfeed. And some of them were things which ultimately, I'm not sure even how much Mark was aware of this, would change the character of the newsfeed. There's something that a lot of the posts you'd see would not be from the people you knew, but from people who were peripheral to your network, maybe second degree friends, right. or, or the uh, incentives of what got in your newsfeed, the ranking uh, rules would be such that if something was getting high engagement, it would percolate through the system so much faster. And Facebook really encouraged like virality. Mm. And they loved it when 80 million people would watch someone explode a watermelon. Right? right. And I feel that changed the character of Facebook in a way which... Uh, people couldn't resist it because, you know, this, this viral stuff was great, but it allowed things like fake news to be circulated more widely. And a lot of things that people would click on but maybe not feel good about. So I think a lot of people now use Facebook but don't necessarily feel as good as they did. 
the things they feel about. And Mark has identified this, the, the community stuff, the things that, that, that bring them in touch with the people around them or the things they really care about is what's important. And he's trying to reclaim some of that, but the direction he went in uh, you know, through Facebook out there in, in a way which I think long-term wasn't healthy. Right, it went. It prioritized controversy over exactly over really or sensationalism. Else. Sure, yeah. And, and he used that word. And he he said, "Wow, we did a study. It's about a little over a year ago. We found, we did a study and we found that content on Facebook, which isn't against our policy, but is really sensational and maybe walks up to the border of what's unacceptable. Yeah. People really like. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, it's <laughs> and human he, he wanted to figure out algorithms to dampen that. But that's that's what they invited in. Right. What do you think is one thing that Facebook does that every company should do? I think they empower their employees. How so? And every employee at Facebook goes to a boot camp. And if you're at all in a technical job, you write code. And you don't leave the boot camp until you push something out in the code base. Wow. So you have something live on Facebook before you even leave boot camp. Correct. Wow. Coming from software, that's that's rare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's something. It could be just a you know you fix this or whatever. But yeah. you know you you're given the ability to participate and you know, right. And, and that instills a sense of confidence, ownership in its exactly. employees. Yeah. Gotcha. Great. Even in a big company. So you mentioned how you, in, in a similar fashion, wrote a book about Google. Correct. What would you say is the most surprising difference that you've seen between Google and Facebook after ha having studied these two companies so in depth? Both companies were led by strong personalities. Of course, for a long time, Google was led by, you know, a, a CEO they brought in from outside, mm -hmm. Eric Schmidt. But Larry Page was really the driving force, and then the, the, the CEO. But they never became cult of personality within the company like Mark did at Facebook. You know, whereas mm -hmm. people like would even people who never met Mark would be able to say to me, "Well, this is what Mark wants me to do." Yeah. And yeah, so he really was inside the head of all his employees. Yeah. So he's so central to that company. I wonder what's better or which is better or worse, or maybe neither. Ultimately, I, I got to feel that you have to separate it at some point. I mean, you know, look, Mark, people don't stay at a company forever. Right. And you don't want your company to be so dependent on the way one person thinks right. and, and, and acts. That if that person leaves, yeah, they're at a loss. What's interesting about that is you mentioned in the discussion earlier how when Mark Zuckerberg brought in Sheryl Sandberg, he just kind of took a bunch of stuff, took it off of his plate and put it on hers. Right. And was my understanding correct that that actually came to came back to bite him a little bit in the end because he was so far removed from those pieces of the business. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I mean, yeah. As a CEO, you have to be aware of, of everything, and the way that worked was, in a way, Cheryl's competence uh, worked against her because she felt that she could take care of everything within her domain, mm. and it might even be a knock on her competence if something's you know in her world was something that Mark had to deal with. Yeah. So as a result, he didn't get to really grapple with some of those big problems Facebook was having and the Facebook faces still faces now until it had already caused damage to the company. So it sounds like if he were to do it again, he probably would have at least a little stayed tuned a little bit more to what was going on on the other he, side. He told me that directly. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. 
If you'd like to be a part of the Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs Accelerator powered by Techstars, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes and apply today. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production. This episode was produced by Kevin Schmidlin with editing by Max Graham and theme music by The Last Generation on Film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time. <laughs>